podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and today we're going to be at the American Helicopter Museum and Education Center in Westchester, Pennsylvania. We speak with Bob Beggs, who is one of the co-founders of the museum. He shares with us the process he and his colleagues had to go through when they got their museum established, and he shares with us some of the really amazing educational programs that have been developed there. Whether you are a rotorhead, a whirly girl, or a museum fan, I think you'll enjoy learning about the history of rotary flight. We also learn about Pitt Cairn and his Collier Award in 1930 for his development of the autogyro, which was completely foreign to me until I did this episode, and the human-powered, award-winning Aerovelo Atlas Helicopter. So if you want to see pictures of today's episode, go to www.curatorschoicepodcast.com and check out the podcast on Facebook and Instagram. If you're enjoying the content, share this podcast with a friend or feel free to leave a review. Or if you really want to go support crazy, then check out Curator's Choice Patreon at patreon.com slash choice for bonus content and early episode access. All right, enjoy the episode. So I am one of the co-founders of the museum. The museum is here in Westchester, Pennsylvania, in the heart of the Delaware Valley, because this is the cradle of rotary wing development in the United States. It all started here. So when you say the cradle, I mean, what, what are you talking about exactly? This is where they were first made, or this is where they continue to be made? I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, rotary wing, well, what I'll, I'll, I'll use the terms rotary wing and helicopter and, and vertical lift probably throughout this interview. But this is really where the first rotary wing aircraft, an autogyro, was brought to the United States by a gentleman by the name of Harold Pitcairn. And, and Harold Pitcairn was the son of a wealthy industrialist, John Pitcairn, who had founded Pittsburgh Plate Glass, and they lived up in the Bryn Athen area. And Harold was very interested in aviation in the mid-1920s, his son and had actually acquired a fleet of bi-wing aircraft, you know, aircraft with two wings. I was going to ask, what did, what did aviation look like in the 1920s? Yeah, but so that's what it looked the like. aircraft in those days had two wings, uh, an upper wing and a lower wing, and his vision was uh, delivering mail uh, along the east coast of the United States. He saw it as a business opportunity. The problem was that there weren't very many airports back then, and um, the mail had to get through. And if there was severe weather, the pilots were forced to land these aircraft in fields. And not only was he losing aircraft, he was losing aircraft, uh, losing airplanes and the mail in the process. He uh, had the, uh, he was fortunate enough to be able to monitor what was going on in other parts of the world. And in Spain, a gentleman by the name of Juan de la Sierra had taken a biplane, had removed the top wing, and instead attached to it um, a pivot so that that top wing could actually spin uh, while the lower wing remained fixed. And that spinning top wing was um, actually moved by air flowing over it. So think of a, a kid's pinwheel uh, or a maple seed. When you move it through the air or you drop a maple seed, it rotates. Same concept. So as, as long as 
uh, Juan de la Sierra's aircraft was moving forward, so it had a propeller on the front like a regular uh, bi-wing uh, bi airplane in those days, the rotor would start spinning. And what he learned was that would limit the amount of takeoff run that you needed. And better yet, once you were airborne, you could simply, if you shut the front engine off, if you pulled the throttle back, the aircraft would just gently drift to the ground and land on a spot. Just like the maple seed. Just like the maple seed, which was when, when Pitcairn saw that, he said, ah, my pilots run into a storm, not a problem. They just have to set themselves down. They don't need a runway. And then they need a very short takeoff distance to take off again. And in fact, in those early, early auto gyros, uh, the pilots, you'd sometimes see them standing up in the cockpit and they'd reach up to that rotor and they would start spinning it by hand to even shorten their takeoff run uh, even more than that. So how did Pitcairn hear about this, this Spain rotary type? Yeah, be because he was a very affluent person and wealthy and he was into aviation, there would have been some communication. He probably okay. read about it in papers and things like that. I don't know specifically how he learned, but he was very quick to go over there and negotiate a deal to not only bring um, the Sierra, what's called the Sierra C8 was the model that he brought to the U.S. And what's really interesting with that, that aircraft still exists. It's in, it's at the Silver Hill, the, the Garber facility of the National Air and Space Museum. It hasn't been restored, but it still exists. That original Sierra C8 is in the National Air and Space Museum. But he, came, he bought the rights to build them here. Okay. And so he established a factory uh, up near what's now known as the Willow Grove Naval Air Station. The building still exists that was his factory. In fact, that airfield was originally a Pitcairn airfield. And he be began to manufacture the Sierra design. So just like with Henry Ford, how everybody, you know, thinks of Henry Ford as being the vehicle mastermind, even though right. there were vehicles before him. So Pitcairn is kind of seen as the father of, of aerogyros? Um, Pitcairn would be recognized, uh, I would say Wanda Lissier is the father of autogyros. Okay. Uh, Pitcairn uh, actually produced, really mass produced them. I think uh, a better analogy, that, that analogy is better used for the development of the helicopter, which occurred 10 years later. I see, now, okay, okay. So the autogyros were the first, what we call rotary wing aircraft, because it literally is an aircraft that rotates its wings. Okay. That's how it creates lift. But those autogyros could not take off vertically and they could not hover. They could not sit above something. They had to be moving forward. So. The ideas that the autogyro development community had um, put into those aircraft, including there was another guy, Burke Wilford, whose picture is on the wall out there that I showed you. Uh, Burke Wilford actually, uh, right up here, if you know where uh, Great Valley is and the Desmond Hotel and that area, that used to be an airport, the mainline airport, and it was owned um, by Burke Wilford. And he developed his own autogyro, but what he uniquely did was he was the first to put controls into those rotors. So he literally could change the pitch of the rotors. So they were controllable rotors. He doesn't get as much, um, he isn't as well known as Pitcairn, but from a technical perspective, that really led to 
practical helicopters because helicopters you have to control the rotors to create lift and, and move forward and move backwards etc so the there was a there was a meeting that was held at uh, the Franklin Institute in 1938 and a number of those auto gyro now at that time by 1938 remember 1929 first auto gyro to the US by 1938 nine years later there were a number of auto gyro companies that have popped up because an engineer that worked for Pitcairn said, hey, I could do this and would start their own company. So uh, we do highlight at the museum these various companies, but they all got together at the Franklin Institute uh, and shared technology, shared ideas. And there were people that were interested in the concept of a powered rotor, i.e. a helicopter, uh, at that meeting as well, including, you know, the developer of Arthur Young, who was a developer of the, of the Bell helicopter. Uh, you had Sikorsky, you had uh, the uh, Piasecki, uh, Frank Piasecki. So they were all exchanging ideas. And not soon after that, not long after that, I should say, you saw the, the, the first production type helicopter introduced by Igor Sikorsky. Now you should know that the Germans were already uh, probably a few years earlier, had developed a successful helicopter. But it didn't look like a traditional helicopter with a big main rotor in the front and a tail rotor in the back. It actually had, it looked like an airplane with two pylons on the side and the rotors, the rotor blades were on the side. And in fact, you'll see a picture in one of our displays of um, Platte Lepage had bought the rights to build the German helicopters here in the US, uh, that configuration. But Igor Sikorsky, who was from Connecticut, developed what's considered the first successful helicopter in the U.S., and he went into production on those. Not far after him, uh, the, second six, the second pioneer that is credited in the U.S. is uh, Frank Piasecki, who went on to develop big tandem rotor helicopters. So he's considered the father of tandem rotor helicopters, tandem being uh, a, a main road, a big rotor in the front and a big rotor in the back, like today's Chinook helicopter. That was Frank Piasecki, he's a Philadelphia guy. Uh, and then I mentioned Arthur Young, who um, is credited, he's, he's considered the father of the third successful helicopter in the US and the Bell helicopter, uh, the development of Bell helicopters. And uh, so, this really, this whole area was a hotbed of rotary wing development in the 1920s, late 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And, and that has blossomed even into today when this is an area that, that uh, Boeing rotorcraft, that um, Sikorsky uh, rotorcraft, that um, Piasecki still exists, uh, and um, Leonardo. So there are four companies that still are uh, manufacturing helicopters uh, and doing helicopter research here in the Delaware Valley. We call ourselves rotorheads. Uh, <laughs> it, it must be something in the water here in the Delaware Valley. You know, there's Eagles fans and there's rotorheads. That's, and uh, that's, that really is the history. And that's the reason we established the museum here. You know, in, in 1993, at the time, I, I was uh, blessed to be the president of the local chapter, the Philadelphia chapter of the American Helicopter Society. And 
we being one of the larger chapters of the international this international society now called the vertical flight society we wanted to do something significant to recognize the 50th anniversary of the society and again the society really the first time all those guys got together was at the franklin institute then they moved to new york and held a meeting there and literally that followed with the development of the american helicopter society so we wanted to celebrate that and I had invited a, a group of pioneers who were still alive at the time uh, to a meeting down at the Boeing plant, and, and we brainstormed a lot of different ideas. And um, a gentleman by the name of Peter Wright, who was the CEO of Keystone Helicopters here, uh, just right up here on 202, uh, said, you know, gentlemen, I've been interested in a helicopter museum. I have some helicopters. Would you be interested in doing that? And you know, we all, we had brainstormed a lot of different ideas, but there was general consensus that that was a worthy, that was a worthy goal. Uh, so that was in 1993, and it took a lot of work and with some amazing volunteers. It was all done by volunteers. Nobody was being paid uh, to create this museum, and there's a whole story behind the creation of the museum and how we ended up here in Westchester. But sure enough, in October of 1996, we opened our doors to the public and we are celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. In fact, October is going to be uh, events almost every weekend this in a month from now. Perfect. Uh, celebrating our 25th anniversary. So there, there's the history of the museum. I am very curious, kind of, what is the process of starting a museum? I mean, you alluded to that a little bit. That, uh, that's, I've, I've actually written uh, a paper on the history of the first three years, just published it this year. Uh, in, because it's the 25th anniversary, and, and it describes the entire detail uh, from day one, from the inception of the idea to October 1996 when we opened the museum. So I'm willing to share that with you at some point that if you'd like to wonderful. follow that. But it, it was interesting, that original group of pioneers that we had in the room that said, yeah, it would be a great idea, we, we quickly realized that they weren't the right guys to actually start a museum because when they got together, they liked sharing stories about the good old days and things. <laughs> but you know, to start a museum, you had to, you had to get incorporated, you had to find a building, you had to build a collection, all those things had to happen. And so the, in, in our case, it was almost a three-phase effort uh, that each carried its own name. And uh, it started out as the 50th anniversary committee because the whole thing was around celebrating the 50th anniversary. Of the, of the American Helicopter Society. And then as we, as we started to fundraise a bit and we started to look for buildings and we started to develop programming, you know, we knew, interestingly, we originally incorporated the museum as the National Helicopter Museum. And so everything was submitted that way. We got our, you know, we pursued our 501c3 and and all that, and, and we got a phone call from Connecticut from a gentleman who said, you know, we have a museum up here that's called the National Helicopter Museum. You stole our name. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> so we went back and uh, did a whole meeting where we just brainstormed uh, names, and we came up with the American Helicopter Museum. And we were so committed to, we really wanted to educate, we wanted this facility to educate 
people on the life-saving missions of helicopters, what they do, not just preserving the past, but educating and inspiring future generations of, of engineers and helicopter pilots and maintenance people. And, and so uh, we, we added an education center, the American Helicopter Museum and an education center. And that's been, that education center piece has been critical to the evolution of the museum. We can come back to that later. But so we went, uh, there was a group, a group of people that we enlisted that each took a different role. We went from the 50th anniversary committee to the cornerstone committee uh, to, to get to the point where we would identify locations. Interestingly, as, as and each of us took a role, in my case, um, I took responsibility as, as vice president. Peter was president, I was vice president. And um, again, we had these, these great volunteers that were helping. I took on the programmatic side. So what was it gonna, what was this, once we found a building, what was it gonna look like? How were we gonna run it, et cetera? Uh, Peter really focused on fundraising and building searching with others. We had some people looking into how we would do air shows to raise funds. It was, uh, there were all kinds of contentious moments along that path that, that we, could, we could discuss, especially over location. But uh, one of the things that was interesting was we had gotten a commitment from uh, then, I believe he was the president of Penn Mutual down in downtown Philadelphia. And the Penn Mutual building sits right behind uh, Independence Mall. And so, prime location, right? And there was an empty, at the time, there was an empty, there was an empty plot of land right next to the building. And, and he said to us that if we wanted to build our museum right there, downtown Philly, that they would provide us with the space to do that. Wow, so we were, we were really taken back by that offer. And the, if you read some of our early literature, it talked about how we would initially start in a building somewhere in the suburbs to build the collection while we fundraise for the, uh, this building in downtown Philadelphia. I mean, there we were, uh, there would already be two million visitors a year, right? That why wouldn't you wanna do it there? But that was a big undertaking to build a building in downtown Philadelphia when we had just begun fundraising mm -hmm. to get started. So after a lot of searching, we ultimately landed here. The, these three buildings on this property, we're in the center one. This used to actually be the headquarters of Messerschmitt Bokal Blom, MBB, which was a helicopter manufacturer, a German helicopter manufacturer. They had been acquired uh, by Eurocopter and they moved their offices to Grand Prairie, Texas. And as a result, these three buildings were empty. And um, we checked these out and ultimately agreed this should be the place where we start. We needed to build our collection. We, um, we connected with the National Air and Space Museum who at that time, it was very, it was conducive for both of us. Uh, they were closing their helicopter exhibit because they had a plan to build a new facility out of Dulles, uh, the Udvar-Hazy facility, but it was only a dream at that point. The uh, Gallery 103, which was the helicopter gallery at the downtown Air and Space Museum, 
was being closed down and going to be replaced with an Enola Gay exhibit. So they were getting, they were taking helicopters out of the National Air Space Museum, which upset a whole lot of helicopter rotor heads. <laughs> and um, so here we were starting a museum. So we had a great relationship with the National Air Space Museum. They lent us the first be existing Bell helicopter. They lent us the first Piasecki PV-2 helicopter that was on display. And we had uh, the XR-4, which was the first uh, really the predecessor to the first production Sikorsky. So those were three that we had on display on opening day, as, as well as this uh, big blue helicopter, a big uh, HUP-2, which had been restored by uh, Boeing retirees. And, and it really, that is credited as being the first helicopter for, the other ones were on loan. Mm -hmm. This was actually ours. And, and the, these Boeing retirees uh, lovingly restored that aircraft. It's beautiful. It's on display uh, here in the museum. And we opened with a, we opened with a handful of helicopters in 1996. And it was uh, it's been just a an amazing journey since then. And, and now look again, at you guys here now we are with uh, probably one of the finest collections of rotary wing aircraft, um, certainly in the United States, if not the world. And, and there have been times in our history where there have been suggestions that we partner up with and create a, an aviation, a bigger aviation museum in the Delaware Valley here. And our board has always stood firm. Um, we as founders of the museum had said, we are only going to be rotary wing because we know when fixed wing guys get involved that the, the helicopters get pushed to the back corner. And we really wanted to uh, to celebrate the, you know, the development, the pioneering spirit of, of those who uh, developed what is truly one of the most amazing types of aircraft in the world, frankly, out of the world recently, uh, than, uh, you know, than the helicopter. So we have stayed true to rotary wing. Even as the rotary wing industry has transformed over the last decade, uh, we are now featuring some, some of the more unique modern helicopters. Uh, they're even, they're, they're electric. They, in some cases, won't need pilots. The, the, the future of rotary wing is changing significantly. And a number of those helicopters uh, or aircraft, what we would call vertical lift aircraft are on display at the museum as well. So it's an exciting, it's an exciting place because uh, a number of the aircraft are hands-on. You know, this was voted, um, this museum was was voted best when we opened best scientific outing in in the Delaware Valley. We got a lot of accolades. Uh, one of the coolest accolades, um, Ella was there. We didn't even know about it. Uh, Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon does this thing called Nickelodeon's Parents Pick uh, for best museums. We had never heard of it, and uh, we get this notice that Nickelodeon Parents Picks had voted. The American little old American Helicopter Museum out here in West as the best kids museum in Philadelphia. Oh wow! Can you even imagine? Because there's so many. There's so many great and and um, we were just blown away by that. But I think it was because we set out to not be a dry, dusty museum where you can't touch things. There are a number of the helicopters that uh, that people can climb into, move the controls. Uh, for many years, we would uh, do air shows here, uh, provide helicopter rides. So it was a different experience. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an ex 
the, the goal was to help people experience vertical flight. We have a simulator, uh, we have a theater, and um, so that has continued. And uh, we're just excited. It's also been voted the best uh, best place for uh, kids' birthdays. Uh, so there's a lot of kids' birthdays around here. Why? Because the fact is, kids like kids like helicopters. Mm -hmm. Kids like and, things that fly. Kids <laughs> like things that fly, and they like places where they can. Uh... And so that also leads into I mentioned the education programs. Uh, the mu museum has pioneered a number of unique education programs. Uh, for all ages, but one of the ones that most resonates with me was a program originally called Women, uh, in, Aero Women in Aerospace and Technology Program, WATP. It has, the name has changed. Now it's Girls in Science and Technology, uh, the GIST program. But it evolved over time, but the, the concept was really unique. Uh, it was actually uh, started by a father who had two young girls and he was very frustrated that the school system was pressuring those girls to go into non-technical fields. Uh, and, and he was really frustrated by that. And he was doing a thesis, uh, his master's thesis, I think at St. Joe's, and he was familiar with the museum. And he described this concept of uh, tech, women in technology in college mentoring these younger girls. And he, he brought the idea to us, and we thought it was a brilliant idea. And so we started that, oh, don't even quote, 15 years ago. And, and that was exactly the plan. We had Boeing and Sikorsky women who were uh, engineers in Boeing and Sikorsky uh, being mentors to college students, women who were getting their degrees. And then those women were pouring into these girls age 11 through 16 uh, to encourage them to go into uh, technical careers and you know, getting engineering degrees, et cetera. And the program just expanded. You know, it started very aviation-centric, and then as it grew, all different aspects of science and technology were incorporated into the program. It still goes on today. It's been a little tough with COVID last year and a half change because it's a very hands-on program, mm -hmm. but uh, it's all coming back. And uh, it's been, it's been uh, life-changing for, uh, I'm sure, a number of women who really got inspired by you know, working with people, uh, working with other women who were successful in their careers. Yeah, and so, having those role models and to interact, to interact with as well. Exactly. So you guys are a very interactive museum. Mm -hmm. And then um, we do have a few items that we wanted to highlight from the museum. I think that we should do like a two for one on this where we talk about the two Pitcairn items okay. because that fits perfectly into your guys' entire start of this museum, really. Right. Um, so what are those items? Yeah, and so if you were to come to the museum, look closely as you walk around. Just don't look at all the big airplanes, but there's a lot of other exhibits and there's a lot of stories behind each of the aircraft. Uh, but, but one of the items, we have an area we call Pioneer Hall, and one of the items you'll see in a display case is uh, the slide rule of Juan de, one of Juan de la Sierra slide rule. So the guy who invented the autogyro back in Spain, we have one of his slide rules, and I'm sure that a number of your listeners will say, well, what's a slide roll? I did. I didn't yeah, know what a slide roll was. You did the same thing. Yeah, you're too young to know. Uh, but back when I was in high school, uh, we were taught with slide rules. It was even the uh, slide rule is um, the predecessor to the modern calculator. And so everything that you need to solve mathematically, the engineers all use slide rules in those days. And we have uh, Juan de la Sierra with slide rule on display. We also, we mentioned Harold Pitcairn. 
One of the things that the aviation industry does as a whole is awards the Collier Trophy to the most significant accomplishment in aviation. It still goes on today. And the actual uh, trophy, uh, the American, or the Collier Trophy, is a very large trophy that's on display at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. And all the winners' names are on there. Uh, but you, you couldn't lift it. And so um, everybody that, has, that wins the award is given a small trophy that is their personal one. And we have the uh, trophy that was awarded to Harold Pitcairn in 1931 for his development of the autogyro. So I consider that a, a really unique artifact here in the museum. I wanted to add in a bit more information about the Collier Trophy. I had never heard of it, and apparently it's a really big deal. The award has been around since 1911, when it was first awarded to Glenn Curtis for his successful development of the hydro airplane. And every year since, except the years between 1917 and 1920 because of the war, a new winner was selected for the trophy. I'm going to put a list of all of the recipients and the reasons why they were awarded in the show notes, but I have a few that I wanted to point out to you during the episode. In 1924, the United States Army Air Service was awarded for the first aerial flight around the world. Brings to mind Amelia Earhart, but that is an episode for another time. In 1937, Army Air Corps was awarded for the design and development of the Lockheed XC-35, and it was particularly for the development of the pressurized cabin in the Lockheed XC-35. In 1945, Luis Alvarez was awarded for the ground-controlled approach, which allowed radar operators to guide pilots to a safe landing in all weather conditions. In 1947, Lawrence Bell, John Stack, and Chuck Yeager shared the award for their work on the Bell X-1, which was the first aircraft to break the sound barrier. In 1962, the Mercury 7 Group won the award that was the first seven astronauts. In 1969, the Apollo 11 crew won the award for the first moon landing. In 1992, the Naval Research Laboratory, U.S. Air Force, Aerospace Corporation, Rockwell International, and IBM Federal Systems Company won the award for the Global Positioning System, or GPS. In 1993, the Hubble Space Telescope Recovery Team won the award for the recovery and repair of the Hubble Space Telescope. In 2009, the International Space Station team won the award for the world's largest spacecraft. And then most recently in 2020, Garmin won the, won the award for designing, developing, and fielding Garmin Autoland, which is the world's first certified autonomous system that activates during an emergency to safely control and land an aircraft without any human intervention. Okay, let's get back to Bob at the museum. And if you go around the corner of that, you'll, you, you'll, from, from that display, you'll see some of the pictures of the early Pitcairn autogyros, and then you'll see a mock-up of uh, Igor Sikor the front end of Igor Sikorsky's first helicopter, the VS-300. And you go a little beyond that, and you'll see this, this big quilt that's hanging up. And you know, I mentioned women in aerospace and technology and, 
and the GIST program, that quilt was uh, lovingly made uh, by the Whirly Girls. And the Whirly Girls is an organization of women helicopter pilots. And they created, uh, each of the Whirly Girls created a segment of that quilt and it's all sewn together. And it goes all the way back to the first woman helicopter pilot, Hannah Reich in Germany uh, is Whirly Girl number one. And each of their numbers is on there. So it's, it's worth looking at and reading the history of the Whirly Girls. So um, there's we have a, the rotor heads and the Whirly Girls. The, yeah, they're all rotor heads, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they just, they just uh, happen to be female rotor heads and male rotor heads. <laughs> so uh, that, that whole Pioneer Hall area is just full of artifacts of those very early days in rotary wing development. And if you then go, kind of go around the corner, it, it, although the Restoration Center isn't open to the public because it's an active shop, any of our docents who would be around, if somebody were interested, that let them go in and check it out. But we are completing uh, the restoration that's been underway for a decade or more of a Sikorsky or a Sikorsky R6. It's a it was an aircraft that was used in one of the first helicopter rescues in Gander, Newfoundland, and that aircraft is going to be rolled out. Uh, we have, we're going to have a rollout ceremony. It's, it's completed now. Uh, the first, let's see, it's going to be on the 15th of October. And there'll be a number of people that will be discussing the history and, and the story of, the, and of that aircraft, uh, what, it, you know, what it accomplished, and then how challenging it was to restore it. Because when you take an aircraft that's a 1940s vintage, it's not like you can go to a catalog, vintage aircraft, and go to a catalog and find parts. Mm -hmm. You have to make the parts. And so uh, we have some very talented restoration volunteers um, that, that work back there and recreate uh, these helicopters from what sometimes are craft that have been left out in fields for years and years and years, and, and we hear about them and, and bring them back. And, it's really similar. We did uh, an interview with the National Automobile Museum. Yes. And it's the exact same situation where they have a restoration team and they're constantly having to just make parts because they can't find, <laughs> they can't find them, them anywhere. Right. right. <laughs> so also speaking of, this is my really uh, savvy transition. <laughs> speaking of pieces that are difficult to replicate or kind of more of one of a kind, you guys have an arm of a huge helicopter piece that yeah. is man Yes, the Aero Velo Atlas is a human-powered helicopter, and um, it was developed under a contest that the American Helicopter Society uh, was sponsoring to uh, challenge uh, people to come up with a human-powered helicopter. And this you, is something, this has been going on for a while. This is going on for a long time. It was going on for 20 plus years. And, and Sikorsky had put up a quarter million dollar um, a, award mm -hmm. for somebody that, or a group that was willing to do that. And a number of teams worked on it for many years. There was a team in Japan working on it. There was a team uh, at the University of Maryland that I think many thought was, was going to win it. They were very close to winning it. Uh, and then uh, a team... Um, from Canada, uh, Aerovilo, uh, actually, what? actually accomplished it. So when you say winning it, how do you win? What are the parameters? Yeah, so the requirement was uh, this aircraft to be human-powered. It, it needed to be able to lift off the ground under human power and hover 
uh, three meters high, so about nine feet high. Uh, hold that for a time and stay within a box. So it had to be controllable. You couldn't just mm -hmm. take off and drift. It had to be a controllable aircraft, which was the, the challenge that most people had. Uh, all of them were using pedal power, were using a bike, but uh, as, as you saw when you, when you saw the aircraft, it's huge. Uh, and we have one quarter of it on display here in the museum. And it's got to be, don't quote me on the length of, of one of those pylons, but 40 feet. Mm -hmm. It's huge. It's huge. And, we, and you just have the one arm and you just of have it, the one and arm. And picture there were four of those arms with a bicycle between them. The, the most amazing thing was the technology that went into this. Uh, the aircraft itself weighed 121 pounds. So the aircraft with the bike weighed, weighed less than the pilot who was pedaling it. <laughs> uh, so the engine, the pilot, uh, was uh, weighed more than the, the aircraft itself. But sure enough, they won and it's on display here at the museum. It's just another example that vertical flight and technology changes every, every year. To give you a little more information about the AeroVelo Atlas, I found a really great article on the museum's website. So I'm just gonna read it to you really quick. So just as Bob said, the AeroVelo Atlas is the first human-powered helicopter that achieved the goals of the American Helicopter Society International's Igor Tsiolkovsky Human-Powered Helicopter Competition, wow, mouthful, to create a human-powered helicopter able to hover for 60 seconds and reach a minimum altitude of three meters. So the one that won, the AeroVelo, was designed by Dr. Todd Reichart and Dr. Cameron Robertson of the University of Toronto, and it was constructed with the help of their students and graduates of the university. And control of the Atlas was achieved by leaning the bicycle to tilt the rotor axis. So on June 13th of 2013, the AeroVelo team flew the Atlas for 64 seconds and achieved an altitude of 3.3 meters or 11 feet in a Toronto area arena, winning the $250,000 prize. So the rotor display that is at the museum is like he said, a quarter of it. So the rotor and the truss together weigh only 25 pounds. The pilot, Dr. Reichhart, powered the Atlas using a modified bicycle that was spooled to the rotors with a thin cable of composite material. And for the bicycle, it looks exactly like a bicycle. I mean, it is one, but they don't have the front tire that has been removed. So it looks a little funny when he's sitting on it pedaling. Um, but the exhibit that they have at the museum also includes a display that provides details about the achievement. It includes a movie showcasing the successes and failures leading up to that award-winning flight. And they feature a stationary bicycle. The visitor can pedal piloting the AeroVelo Atlas. So as you pedal harder, a miniature replica of the Atlas human-powered helicopter rises with its motors turning, scaled to the speed of the actual vehicle. There's a really great video online that I found that shows the team in the arena. It shows them a quick compilation of them putting it together, then the actual flight that won. I'm going to put it on the different social medias and on the webpage. I would definitely check it out. It's really cool because it's really hard to imagine exactly what it looks like if you haven't seen it before. I mean, these four 
humongous perpendicular arms, and then each one at the end of it has this huge rotary wing that's spinning around, and then this man pedaling like crazy, leaning around on a bicycle. It's pretty interesting, so be sure to check that out. Okay, let's get back. And as I said earlier, the, the rotorcraft industry is in a major transformation right now. And you know, one of the big highlights of this year was the uh, landing of a helicopter on Mars, the Ingenuity. Talk about exciting. I know all of us were, were awake watching uh, for, is it gonna fly, is it not gonna fly? Mm -hmm. It successfully landed. And that little helicopter has gone beyond anybody's expectations. I think they originally were planning to get five flights out of it. It's still flying today. And um, the museum is actually going to honor NASA and the Jet Propulsion Lab and the companies that are involved in building that uh, aircraft with an event here in October where they're all coming in. We're presenting them the American Helicopter Museum Achievement Award. They'll be speaking about the challenges of building a helicopter that can fly on another planet. Mm -hmm. And if that, you know, this is where the rotor heads finally beat out the fixed wing guys. <laughs> it, it, it's Once and for all, it's we're better at years, this. <laughs> but the, the first aircraft on another planet was a helicopter. Take that. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> that's awesome. Just have a plaque in your that, welcoming right. center. Uh, this is why we're better. <laughs> Yes, we're that's, very pleased. That's wonderful. Well, you guys have a really amazing museum, and I I appreciate how you are so so direct about your dream and continuing the idea of the importance of the rotary and the, the rotary. What's the best way to characterize all the blades that are in your museum? They're all rotorcraft. Just rotorcraft. Yeah, we would use the term rotorcraft. Rotorcraft, like aircraft. Okay. But rotorcraft. But rotorcraft. Okay. Yes. Well, you guys do a great job sticking to your rotorcraft <laughs> mission. Mission. Yeah. And our mission being to preserve the history, right? To educate the public on the life-saving missions that helicopters perform and all the amazing missions, and then to inspire future generations. And you guys are also covering past, present, and future as well. And past, present, and future. You guys are all over the board. Yeah. And, and we and have fun doing it. Exactly. So thank <laughs> come you so out to, much. Yeah. Come out to one of our air shows. You know, if, if you go to the uh, museum website, uh, www.americanhelicopter.museum, uh, all of our programs are there. So we would certainly encourage you to check it out and come out and join us. Yeah, please come check it out. And as someone who, like I have said a couple of times, I really don't know much um, about this, this world, but I still really enjoy the museum. So even if you're not a rotorhead, you can still enjoy your time here. <laughs> We'll make you an honorable rotorhead. Yeah, yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode and learning with me. If you find yourself in Pennsylvania, definitely try to make it out to Westchester to visit the museum and see all of these things for yourself. If you have any museums you would like me to reach out to to do a potential episode, let me know and I will see what I can do. If you just can't get enough of Curator's Choice and my charming voice, consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron of the show. I have two different support tiers on patreon.com slash curatorschoice. 
You can do the historian supporter, which you will be able to get early access to episodes, and it's just $2 a month. If you want to go really hard, you can become a curator supporter and get early episode access and a monthly bonus episode where we do a deep dive into the behind the scenes work done for museums, their collections, their research, their preservation, anything museum that is interesting. I try to make a bonus of it. So January's bonus episode last month, we met with Victor Perez at the Calvert Marine Museum, and we talked to him about the process of creating his sharks exhibit. And for this coming month, February, we will meet with author Megan Rosenblum to talk about her research for her book, Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin. So consider becoming a patron supporter and thank you guys so much for listening. Mm-hmm.